What's up, my spooky skeletons? It's your bone pappy, Wolf the Dog, and I'm back from the past, clapping that ass and lapping up trash here on 694.2 PTBP, contention's most coherent and easy-to-follow radio station. But on the off chance you disagree with that objective sentiment, we're dropping a very special recapulation of the entire situation going down here in contention. Seems like a good time for it. You know your wolfie might take a couple notes, even though I am a all-seeing, all-knowing being and all that. This week's Howlin' with Wolf is from Sinbad. Yeah, that Sinbad. The mailman in Jingle All the Way, the genie in Shazam, Wait, what? For real? Like the Berenstein Bears thing? Fuck. <clears throat> okay, what the fuck is going on around here? Sinbad wasn't a genie in a movie called Shazam? <sighs> Howl away, Sinbad. Howl away. Zach the Wolf, what's up? This is Sinbad, man. I understand you having a hard time with the Mandela effect, man. Now, Zach told me, Zach Reeves got me here with this. He said, you're having some issues, man. And look, I've dealt with the phenomena. It's a real phenomenon, man. See, there's a movie Shazam that I never did, but they're getting ready to do a part two. Who knows? They might put me in that one. So you never know. But uh, no, I never did Shazam. Uh, never. Um, I just read the comic books and watched the, the TV show when I was a kid coming up. So um, I, don't know how, I don't know what kind of Mandela effect you're going through. All I can say is this, man. If you're going through the Mandela effect, man, it's messing with you, messing with your mind. Not weed, CBD. Not weed. Less weed. More CBD. All right now, listen to me. <laughs> sin bad. More like sin great. Am I right, folks? I hope y'all were laughing because otherwise I'm going to be crying. Hmm. I have an announcement here from No Wait Hang On. One of our stunning and cherished moderators on both Discord and Reddit. He writes, we've selected a winner for the second part of our community writing contest. Choosing a setting. Congratulations to user Windula, the writer behind Allenson. To check that out and all the other great submissions, follow the link in the show notes. You go, user slash Windula, and a very hearty thanks to user slash Slaughter Without the S, user slash Black Moxa, user slash AAL718, user slash RPG Burner, you slash Swimming Drop kick and you slash punk ass book jockey your submissions were delectable the third part of the contest on npcs opens tomorrow we're going to be accepting multiple winners on that one so if you have a bunch of ideas you can absolutely hose us down with them i'ma get all wet with the npcs my spoopy skeletons all right, y'all, get ready for a lecture. No, a refresher on the ever-mounting pressure so your weathered ears have the pleasure of being fresher than ever. Get ready for a festering treasure to enjoy at your leisure while wearing your finest pleather. Whether your name is Heather or whatever, enjoy this track forever. It is Kudzu with no backbone.
This story began on an unseasonably warm December 1st in a small town called Contention. A thin mist could be seen under the streetlights on an empty country road. The inside of the Contention Police Department, however, was cozy, warm, and bright. At the front desk, every morning and every evening, Drew Andrews sat determined small teeth and big gums showing, answering the phone and taking messages. In the bullpen sat our three PCs, or protagonist cops, though neither of those words seemed to factually describe these player characters. Clark Bishop was the oldest, a by-the-book officer dead set on doing his best in this dead-end job, still living in the house his parents left him when they died. He had never cooked, and he watched Wheel of Fortune every night. Keith Vigna was raised just outside contention, but soon moved to the city, where he trained to become a police officer. His stint in the city was short-lived. He's not a bad cop. He's just a bad cop. His pants are too big. John Lee Pettymore IV was one of the few Pettymores to stay on the right side of the law, or at least the Pettymore version of that. His mustache, tight pants, substance abuse issues, and inability to keep bullets in his clip aligned perfectly with both his family values and love of Smokey and the Bandit. On this evening, December 1st, Drew Andrews, top lip receding, gums akimbo, received a bevy of calls, complaints regarding the abundance of howling coming from the dogs in the old neighborhood. This neighborhood west of downtown was home to John Peters, Mildred Mitchell, Tildy B. Mitchell, Councilwoman Carrie Pages, and the boss of the Contention Police Department, Chief Maggie Cook. And it just so happened that December 1st, this night when everything began, was the Chief's birthday. Drew presented Chief Cook with a yellow journal, noting she already had this same notebook in both red and blue. Clark got her the same thing he got her the year before, and every year before that he's been on the force, a box of chocolates. John pulled a bottle of cheap bourbon from his desk. It was open, and a third of it was gone, but he tried. Keith panicked. He didn't realize it was the chief's birthday. However, there was a mysterious package wrapped nicely sitting on Drew's desk. Keith claimed it as his gift. But when Maggie Cook opened this present and saw its contents, she began weeping, walked into her office, and slammed the door, leaving Clark, Drew, and John staring in bewilderment at the new kid in town, Keith Vigna. Chief Maggie Cook, distraught and determined, left the contention police station without saying a word. In the box were three items, a single red rose, a white hard hat, and a black silk bow tie. Before they could react, Drew Andrews received the phone call that set all of the preceding events in motion. Julie Maxwell reported a dead body at the Piston Junkyard. The chiefless CPD headed out to investigate the scene. On the way there, they spotted Julie Maxwell driving chaotically and well above the speed limit back toward town. John Lee Pettymore IV peeled off to pull her over just in time to see her near-fatal car accident. She was thrown clear of the vehicle, face smashed, 
crying out into the night. John called an ambulance and investigated the crash. In her car, he found an open bottle of brandy, gas cans, lighters, an unusual camera with strange glass tubes, a red light lit and a green light unlit, as well as a Polaroid that showed the base of a tall building and a group crowding the entrance with fists raised. Everything in this picture was lit by torches in some of the people's hands and the building was a slightly shiny pitch black. Keith Vigna and Clark Bishop carried on to the piston junkyard where they found a body splattered on the ground face first, face smashed. The body was wearing thick, hand-stitched clothing and leather boots. A small note in the pocket read, We is striking when the land gets darkness. Readying torches, hesitate not. Most peculiar, however, was the skin on this body's back. A fresh wound. It was branded with the words, This is a fool. This corpse was determined to be a woman. And the officers called in their fourth musketeer, the only other contention police officer, Ray, to take the corpse over to county for testing. They also called the city hospital to check on Julie Maxwell's condition. She had been declared deceased. After some light discussion of smashed faces and blunt force trauma, Clark Bishop headed home to his TV dinner and Wheel of Fortune. Keith Vigno went back to his temporary home, Hotel Motel, where his golden retriever, Bean, waited patiently. And John Lee Pettymore IV shot some pool by himself at Clinkers, the local watering hole and daycare. The next day, on December 2nd, three assignments awaited the three officers. Councilwoman Carrie Page's dog was missing, and she was distraught. The councilwoman suggested Tyler may have been eaten by a person, as contention had just seen a rise in homelessness. Clark printed posters and walked the neighborhood all to no avail. Jimmy Sanders, an uncle of sorts to John Lee Pettymore, called in an oil spill across a country road in the southeast sometime around 4 a.m. John checked it out, found no oil spill, and Jimmy admitted he was tripping on mushrooms during the incident. Mildred Mitchell, Contention's kooky pothead grandma, wanted someone to know her neighbor's door was open and this neighbor, this John Peters, hadn't been around in a few days. Keith found out she saw a bright flash of light from Peters' place a few nights previous and he's been missing ever since. Keith checked it out and found John's mail overflowing, his car in the driveway, and his front door smashed into the drywall. In the house were broken pictures and clear signs that John was a heavy drinker. There was also a trunk in the living room. Burned into the top of this trunk were the words, Do not open if you want to live. The trunk was empty, save some foam padding that held four specifically shaped items, one large, two medium, and one small. There were betting stubs on John's nightstand. He bet on long shots and mostly lost. John's keychain had his house keys, a bottle opener, his car keys, a few small keys that said G10, G11, and G12, and a key fob for a rewards program at Dirty Dog Grooming, a pet salon franchise in the city. However, John didn't seem to have a dog. 
According to Drew Andrews, John Peters wasn't very interesting, though he did have a long stay in the hospital a couple years ago. After meeting back up, the three officers decided to look further into John Peters, starting again at his home. When they arrived, his car was no longer in the driveway, and the empty trunk was missing from inside the residence. Mildred Mitchell came by to let them know two people came, packed up the trunk into their white Toyota, and took off, one in their car and the other in John Peters' maroon vehicle. The officers headed to Chief Maggie Cook's house next. Her cruiser wasn't there. She wasn't there. They hit up Clinkers. The only information from Harry Clinker was that Keith liked to cut up hot dogs on white bread when he was a kid. Continuing this tour of contention, the cops went out to harass Leo Piston, the owner of the Piston junkyard, who had a restraining order placed against him by Julie Maxwell 15 years before after Leo was accused of killing Julie's sister Ashley. Clark set up a meeting with Leo and George, the Piston brothers, for the following day. Keith stayed behind to keep a hidden eye on the Piston pig farm. Back at the police station, John found the chief's blue notebook, full of work appointments and notes, but her red notebook and the newly gifted yellow notebook weren't in her office. That's about the time when Contention received a chilling phone call. The city hospital had fucked up. They heard screaming from inside a drawer in the morgue. Julie Maxwell was alive. John Lee Pettymore took off for the city hospital to get some answers. Clark came into the office to an equally confusing message from County. Apparently, that body from the junkyard had the organs of someone who died 200 years ago, but the skin and hair of someone who died yesterday. Then, Charles, a drunk man and friend of the missing John Peters, came to the station to figure out what was going on. Before pulling a gun and running away upon hearing the sound of a car crash in the parking lot. Out at the Piston pig farm, Kathy Piston shot the encroaching and trespassing Keith Vigna in the foot. Recognizing him, though, she bandaged his wound and offered her apologies for the incident. After Keith claimed to have a warrant, she offered him coffee. Keith snooped around her property, failing to find anything of interest until he eventually stowed away on Kathy Piston's school bus full of homeless people. Afraid of being caught, though, he bailed out of the emergency hatch in the back, further hurting his shot and bandaged foot. In the parking lot of the city hospital, a creepy figure, obscured by a black cloak and hood, approached John Lee Pettymore IV. This mysterious man handed John a note written in binary and croaked, Say hello to me, will ya? Before softly cackling and disappearing into the rows of parked cars. John texted Drew a picture of the binary note to translate, and he radioed the only other contention police officer, Tim, to do a search for storage facilities in contention with G-Units. John didn't find Julie Maxwell at the hospital because she dipped, stole a black SUV, and made a beeline for contention. This was, of course, the same black SUV that just T-boned George Piston's truck in the parking lot of the contention police station, now helmed at gunpoint by a kidnapped Leo Piston. 
The three officers pursued Julie Maxwell and Leo Piston in the stolen black SUV out to Splashylvania, the abandoned vampire-themed water park Ashley Maxwell was heading to 15 years ago when her life ended. Bishop Pettymore and a hobbling Vigna found their targets at the top of the two-fanged plunge. Maxwell with a pistol to the back of the kneeling Leo Piston's torso. She cried out into the night, This world is not our own, and little else matters, except for the black, shiny devil and the underground temple from which it shall rise. But if there's a tiny chance that justice matters, then my sister deserves this fat fuck to bleed out and die. With that, she fired a shot through Leo's body. Clark immediately pulled his pistol and put a bullet through one of Julie Maxwell's eyes. The two limp bodies slid slowly down the two opposing slides, wet for the first time in a decade and a half with the blood of these opposing contention residents. But at the bottom of the ride, something incomprehensible happened. The bodies of Julie Maxwell and Leo Piston were picked up and slammed into the ground repeatedly and at an absurd rate by some unseen force. And then, as if they were never there at all, both bodies were gone. Keith saw, covering the ground where the two bodies just were, a black, shiny, viscous sludge. Seemingly inside this muck were the thrashing bodies of Julie Maxwell and Leo Piston. Their hands reached out, trying to escape this thing that had them trapped, but their limbs soon seemed to fold into this ooze, becoming one with the sentient mass of goop that began sliding across the ground toward Keith, who promptly wily coyote the fuck out of there. Back in the Splashylvania parking lot, the strange camera's green light was lit. John took a picture, causing a blindingly bright flash of light, and he instantly saw black, viscous goo dripping from the camera all over his hands, and then it was gone. The picture was of a short, balding man with large eyes and a tiny nose. He was bent over, head in hands, and stocks made of a shiny black material, and the word fool was branded into his forehead. Clark recognized this man as their missing John Peters. Drew Andrews texted John back with the translation of the mysterious man's binary message. It read, I killed the chief's pops, John. Before they called it a day, Keith went to the clinic and acquired a wheelchair. That night, these three contention police officers had some strange dreams. John Lee Pettymore IV, you're reliving the moment when you saw the black sludge on your hands and dripping from the odd camera and picture. Your perception changes and you're out of your body, looking at yourself, staring intently at your own hands. You see, there's the same viscous muck dripping from your eyes and nostrils as you wake up in bed. Keith Vigna, you see a woman standing before you in your bedroom. 
She's wearing old-timey clothing, and she stares angrily at you. She lunges toward you, picking you up and throwing you into the ground, and you fall into the floor of your bedroom and then wake up in bed. Clark Bishop, you see a man underneath you, struggling to breathe. As you tighten your grip around his neck, you look up after the life leaves his eyes and see an empty, dark alleyway as you wake up on the couch with infomercials playing on your TV. The next day was December 3rd. The officers broke into G10, G11, and G12, John Peters' storage units at A-plus storage. G10 was filled with crates stacked three high. Each crate was wooden and stamped U.S. military on the side. Inside these crates were guns, ammunition, and heavy weaponry. This included pistols, shotguns, rifles, a shoulder-mounted anti-aircraft weapon, an EMP rifle, a grappling gun, a small gun that shoots tracers, lots of grenades, a sniper rifle, a very tiny but very powerful gun, and a drone. There was also a pallet on which was sitting a large cube-shaped object covered in so much plastic wrap that its contents were obfuscated. The large cube-shaped object was in fact bricks upon bricks of cocaine. Precisely 479 bricks of cocaine worth around $12 million. John took a brick immediately. Inside G11 was a burlap sack containing $50,000 in shredded blue dye stained banknotes, a piece of notebook paper with poorly drawn diagrams and nearly illegible writing, two 25-pound bags of potatoes, a Ziploc bag containing five bulbs of garlic, a garlic crusher, an empty test tube and a syringe, a small drawstring Nike bag, a 3 million candle power handheld spotlight, a well-filled toolbox, a black leather backpack containing a set of lock picks, wire cutters, wire strippers, a crimping tool, flat and Phillips head screwdrivers, and a lockout tool, a bottle of caffeine pills, a carton of cigarettes, three shovels, a small digital scale, a syringe labeled morphine, a handful of ski masks, walkie-talkies, and a burned CD labeled Monster Mash Mash. Inside G12 was a four-wheeler with dried dirt and clay caked all over the thing, as well as a couple of plastic trunks. Near the door was a small chunk of paper that had been folded into the size of a business card. Against the back wall was a small table with some more papers on it. The small chunk of paper on the floor was a betting guide, and inside were some more ripped up betting stubs. Someone lost $5,000 on October 31st. The three names to bet on were Oz Mayhem Wolf, Miles Detonator Carver, and Carl Blitzkrieg Anderson. At the bottom, it said, Tonight versus Planet Juggernaut. The stubs were all losers. A 5 to 1 bet, then a 6 to 1 bet, then finally a 30 to 1 bet. Inside one of the trunks was a box of assorted batteries, spools of electrical wiring, three disassembled handguns, and an impossibly clean machete sitting atop three full suits, including shirt, tie, and shoes, all covered in dirt, clay, and black stains that look to be blood. There was a note handwritten on a scrap piece of paper that read, 
The cabin is in the woods, stark west from the end of the trail about 2.5 miles, dash K. We took care of nine of them, as well as the leader. There was also a sheet that seemed to be ripped out of a notebook. It was handwritten as well, but in different handwriting, and it said, The work is difficult and particular, but I've had 12 successes. Life isn't as complex as they believe. They are quite simple. It will be their downfall. And the last piece of paper was a cutout from the Contention Chronicle from 25 years ago. An ad that read, Cole's Orphanage, new school under modern etiquette. We are here to serve the beautiful community of Contention. None of the rogue police officers remembered the name of that orphanage, though the Cole name was familiar. Silas Cole was one of the founders of this town, and he was the owner of the mine for a couple of years. His wife, Mary Cole, did a lot of good in the town, and the library was named after her. The school was called Silas Cole K-12, and there was Cole's Creek as well. As the three approached the other plastic trunk in G-12, this one with the lid fastened, the stench was nearly unbearable. It was decided they would wait to open this trunk back at the office. After having a U-Haul delivered, Pettymore, Bishop, and Vigna packed up everything contained in these storage units and brought it all back to the police station. The awfully pungent trunk was clear, and before opening the lid, they could only see a dried black crust which was painted on every bit of the trunk's sides. When they opened it, the rancid smell of old metal hit their nostrils, and atop this pile of what looked like a messily chopped up human body sat a woman's head, split down the middle and pulled apart, with a small silver sphere sitting in between the two halves. Keith took a picture. John pocketed this small silver sphere. Before heading out to the woods, Drew was tasked with looking into finding information about Cole's orphanage and also finding someone who could understand the machinery in the diagram. Out in the woods, the contention police officers found a patch of land that had been burned to the ground, realized they were being watched, freaked out, wrecked the four-wheeler, ran into trees, and overall just super fucked up, topped off by Clark flying a drone into himself. After their failed nature excursion, they went to Julie Maxwell's, wore her taxidermy, and found a circled Yellow Pages ad for Dr. Marie Jacobs, as well as a receipt from Forgotten Treasures, a local flea market. At Forgotten Treasures, they learned that the camera Julie Maxwell purchased was from Mildred Mitchell's booth, but Mildred was unaware of any items recently sold at her booth. She told the boys it must have been her granddaughter, Tildy B, who came downstairs at that exact moment. But the sight of cops spooked her, and she bolted back upstairs and into her room. When Clark busted in, Tildy B. Mitchell had a crazed look in her eyes. She slammed a large bullet into the chamber and squeezed the trigger on this odd-looking revolver. There was an almost blinding flash of light illuminating everything. And then, as if she had never been there, the girl was gone. Clark just saw an odd gun fall to the floor. Confused, he checked the closet and under the bed for the missing girl, unsurprisingly, with no luck. 
the very anti-antiheroes of this story then went to forgotten treasures to ask more questions, and they eventually bullied the nice lady there until she put her own life in danger by telling these cops about the drunk man who threatened her. They left after they got what they wanted, and the white Toyota they had been searching for was right outside. It peeled out onto the road. After a short, dangerous pursuit, the white Toyota was bested, tireless, and boxed in. Bullets were whizzing past him, so Keith Vigna attempted to fire a warning shot with his shotgun. However, this warning shot promptly killed the driver, Charles Donovan. John Lee Pettymore fired shots into the air to disperse the growing crowd, and a few stray bullets also hit Clark's tires. Inside the white Toyota, they found two guns, a wallet with ID for Billy Harrison, a rifle, and keys with a Dodge logo. On the deceased man's person, they found ID from the city for Charles Donovan and a piece of paper with the addresses of both John Peters' house and the Piston Pig Farm. The keys in the ignition included a key to a room at Hotel Motel and a key fob for the rewards program at Dirty Dog Grooming. The dead driver's body had scratches all over the arms, hands, legs, and face. They were not claw marks. They were not from brush. John recognized these scratches as the pattern of human hands. In the trunk was a tied up and unconscious man who matched the picture in the ID for Billy Harrison. Additionally, there was a police uniform, a set of scrubs, and a black suit. In these clothes, they found a contention badge for an Officer Kissel, an ID in the scrubs that said Dr. Zabrowski, and inside a pocket of the black suit were FBI credentials for an Agent Parks. They called an ambulance, and Keith asked the medics to look at his foot first. Still worried about his recovery, Keith took the ambulance to the contention clinic with the unconscious bald man. Clark's final words to Keith before the ambulance doors shut? Keep him cuffed. Officers Bishop and Pettymore headed to the suburbs to chat with Dr. Marie Jacobs when they saw an unkempt man, James the Millworker, in rubber waders, frantically vacuuming his lawn. From across the street, two children stared, unblinking, horrified as the unkempt James began to float up into the air. Clark and John each grabbed a leg, but the man continued to rise. John called the two kids into action, one holding desperately onto the vacuum as the other sucked up this unknown substance with the hose. Their plans seemed to work. All feet were now grounded and this oily sludge poured itself away down into the sewage drain. But then, the vacuum exploded, engulfing the twin children in its contents, this viscous ichor. As the fourth graders folded into the writhing mass, James the millworker lost his shit and wriggled free from Clark's helping grasp turned restraint. When John pulled up next to the on-the-run unkempt man in rubber waders, James looked the mustachioed copper in the face and then broke completely. The mill worker sprinted back home on the same street, leaving Clark Bishop and John Lee Pettymore IV right outside their initial destination, the home of Dr. Marie Jacobs. At the contention clinic, Billy Harrison finally woke up. He had a concussion and had been unconscious for some time. Cuffed to the bed with Officer Keith Vigna asking him a bunch of questions, Billy answered slowly. He didn't remember some things. 
He was 31 years old. He remembered going to John Peters' house. John, John was an old friend who hadn't responded to his messages or answered the phone in a couple days. They played video games together. Billy remembered looking in the window when John didn't answer the door. Billy didn't know a Charles Donovan. Keith told Billy he was tied up in the back of this Charles person's car. Billy said he drove a white van to John's house earlier that day. Billy said he's on leave from the army. Billy said he doesn't know any dog groomers. Then Billy asked to be uncuffed, since he was the victim of a crime. Now, do you think Keith Vigna, A, reacted rationally, or B, escalated the situation, became hostile, and tried to handcuff Billy's other hand? If you answered B, Congratulations! That's exactly right! And because it's Keith Vigna, when he went to handcuff Billy's free hand, the one-handed, concussed, probable victim of kidnapping got the drop on the officer, pulled Keith's gun from its holster, and threatened to shoot. Keith understood in this moment that Billy was willing to pull the trigger. And so, Keith surrendered. Officer Beans unlocked Billy Harrison's handcuff and turned around, which allowed the bald, fit man to knock Keith the fuck out. Back in the suburbs, Clark Bishop and John Lee Pettymore IV had a rough go trying to get any information from Dr. Marie Jacobs, who did not want to open the front door. She asked if they had a warrant. Clark, remembering she bought the radio, asked about it, and she told them the radio wasn't even there anymore. Apparently, a tall, drunk man came and took it, by force, with a gun. John decided they had reasonable suspicion for search and seizure, so he knocked down the door gun obviously drawn. The Jacobs house was a wreck and there was a haze in the air. Clark and John could hear Marie talking down in the basement. In this mad scientist's house, there was something covering every piece of counter space. Jars and beakers were sitting everywhere. It smelled absolutely terrible, kind of like shit. John found a litter box, but the fecal matter inside looked, uh, human. This was the moment John decided Dr. Jacobs was for sure a witch. Clark and John heard a man's voice meow in the basement. Quite the sight in comparison to her usual state. Dr. Jacobs had mascara all over her face and was wearing white coveralls and neoprene gloves. After making eye contact with John for the first time, the incredulous and crazed doctor invited him to join her in the kitchen. John and Clark, having seen enough, arrested and handcuffed Dr. Marie Jacobs. But then she hollered. She hollered, Salem! And a galumphing sound could be heard of something or someone bounding up the stairs. On the evening of December 3rd, Officer Keith Vigna woke up wearing a thin gown with both of his wrists handcuffed to the sides of the hospital bed where Billy Harrison was recently confined. Keith's uniform, Keith's gear, and Billy Harrison were nowhere to be seen. However, the door to this room was now open and a decent amount of the clinic staff was standing around just outside. Some of them were pointing their phones at Keith. All of them were laughing. A few phrases murmured loud enough to make out included, no wonder William was so embarrassed by him, and oh, isn't that Keith Beans? What's he calling himself now? When they actually noticed Keith waking up, they awkwardly shuffled away, and a young woman came into the room with bolt cutters and broke the links on the cuffs, leaving Officer Keith Vigno with a pair of nice iron bracelets. 
After collecting himself, Keith checked the security footage and watched Billy Harrison walk right out the front door wearing his uniform. Back in the suburbs, John had handcuffed Dr. Marie Jacobs and something was running up the stairs. That something was a bloody man wearing only briefs and a collar, and he galloped up the stairs on all fours before tackling Clark into the ground. John kicked the man off Clark, who recognized Dr. Marie Jacobs' husband, Doug Jacobs, from the family portraits around the house that included the couple and their black cat, Salem. After they handcuffed Doug, John asked Dr. Jacobs why her husband is a cat man named Salem, and Marie was like, oh, so you know? When asked why the officers arrived, John said it was illegal to have a cat in a man's body. Dr. Jacobs argued there were no laws disallowing this sort of activity, and preferring the current situation, she asked the cops to leave her be. They claimed they just wanted information, so she told them she believed the radio did it, the radio she purchased at Forgotten Treasures. The officers wanted the radio, but like she said, it was stolen. A tall, drunk man broke in, punched poor Salem in the face, and stole the radio. With coercion and a cat toy, Clark and John got Dr. Marie Jacobs and the cat Salem and the body of Doug Jacobs into the back of their police cruiser, took them into the station, made a human-sized cat bed in one of the cells, and locked up the pair in the only cell not full of contraband from John Peters' units at A-plus storage. John went to pick Keith up at the clinic and found him standing outside in a hospital gown, wearing handcuffs with the chain cut. Back at the station, Clark forced Drew to come to terms with Doug Jacobs being a cat man. After everyone reconvened, Drew had a word with John alone. Apparently, Lauren, the fourth and only other member of the contingent police department, was confused about the amount of blood and gore at Splashylvania. Drew said he told her a deer fell off a water slide, and then he asked if it had something to do with all the cocaine locked up in the jail cell. He continued, figuring John might be interested in unloading the whole pallet for around $10 million. Drew had a contact in the city called The Duke. They walked back in to talk to Clark and Keith, and John said he had good news. Drew had fixed the four-wheeler. Following the lead of the room key from Hotel Motel found in Charles Donovan's possession, the three officers busted into the deceased man's room at Hotel Motel, guns drawn and without a warrant. There they found a woman dressed similarly to her favorite TV character, the Fonz. This woman we now know as Rosemary flinged a knife at Officer Vigna and hid on the other side of the bed. Keith ran up and engaged her in hand-to-hand -hand combat, which resulted in a hostage situation. Knife to his throat, Officer Vigna proceeded to brag about killing her co-worker. Thankfully for his throat, though, the level-headed and highly persuasive Officer Bishop managed to keep Rosemary from killing him there on the spot by getting her talking. Clark asked if she knew Charles. They had worked together. Rosemary laughed and asked if they know who they're fucking with because they were fucking with Marvin Glass, the mob kingpin in the city. When asked about the radio, she thought maybe the thing in the bathroom was a radio. Charles had brought it back, but more importantly, Marvin sent them there to find out what happened to Jermaine Glass and Alfred Glass when they came to collect money from John Peters. Only Alfred came back 
but he came back a blubbering idiot. He wouldn't shut up about some gun. He sounded like a lunatic. The wiry old lady made a run for it and leapt over the railing and into the hotel motel parking lot. All three officers unloaded their weapons from the second floor corridor, bringing her down barely before she could get into her vehicle. The boys in blue patched her up, called an ambulance, and sent her to the city hospital with Lauren, the fourth and only other contingent police officer. With that, they planned a sting operation based around a false radio call to catch Billy Harrison, the stranger running around contention in an official police uniform. They figured he, like everyone else, wanted John Peters. Unfortunately for the CPD, the FBI was watching and also wanted to talk to John Peters. Strangely though, agents Kennedy and McKinley, a young woman with an erratic accent and an old man with empty eyes, were in town looking for a black Nike bag with nothing in it. They thought John Peters would know where this bag was. They were correct in this line of thinking as there was indeed a black Nike bag in Unit G11 at A plus storage to which John Peters held the key. After some verbal dancing, the federal agents agreed to meet the contention squad the following morning, December 4th, at the police department. When the officers met back up at the station to figure out what to do with their illegal seizures, Drew was uncommonly not at his desk, replaced instead by a note telling them he went to the chief's house. Officers Bishop and Pettymore hauled off the undocumented loot to their individual residences, while Keith went to the chief's house to check on Drew. In the entrance of Chief Maggie Cook's home, Keith found two unconscious men, Drew Andrews and an unknown with ID for a Harold Dorsey from the city. In the living room, he saw Chief Maggie Cook's body in full uniform slumped against the wall. A large chef's knife rested in her left hand. Her face had been stabbed repeatedly and her left foot was missing. That's when he noticed the smell, gasoline and natural gas. In the kitchen, an unkempt man was at the table, hunched over with a fork in one hand and a pistol in the other. A bullet hole in his head had left him face down in a plate of meat. His left foot was also missing. Gas cans sat all over the place and the contents had clearly been poured on everything. The range had all four burners turned all the way up and a skillet sat atop. Inside were the leftovers of two feet that had the meat pulled from them. Keith threw up and fell to his hands and knees. His hand hit a wire. He heard a click and saw a fire near the front door and a path of gasoline heading back toward the kitchen. With just enough time to save one person, Keith dragged Drew Andrews out the front door as the entire house exploded, knocking Keith into the front yard and rendering him unconscious. Keith. Standing in your childhood home, it's your birthday, and your friends are standing around this table waiting for you to blow out the candles on your cake. You look up and see your parents in the corner talking to your little brother. 
You squeeze your eyes tightly as you blow out your candles, and as you do, you see that black, shiny, viscous sludge. Inside this muck are two thrashing bodies. Their hands reach out, trying to escape this thing that has trapped them. But the struggle does not last long. Their limbs seem to fold into this ooze, becoming one with the sentient mass of goop that is now sliding across the ground toward you. Opening your eyes, you see all of your peers around your childhood kitchen table laughing at you. The candles are still lit. You look up. Your parents are poorly attempting to hold back laughter. You look at the cake. It's gone. You have a plate that is clean and you look around and see everyone else is eating a piece of cake. They're all laughing and begin to chant while pointing at you. Beans! Beans! Keith! Beans! His only friends are figurines! Beans! Beans! Keith! Beans! will blow your friends to smithereens. Your parents look at you, disgusted, and turn and walk out of the room. You run to follow them, but looking ahead, you only see that woman dressed in old-timey clothing. Looking down, you fall, fall into a black hole in the ground, and you're standing in a cold, dark room. The lights begin to flicker on, and you see massive tanks the size of grain silos. Standing right before you is yourself. You walk up to you. The face of the other you begins to age rapidly and then just as rapidly ages in reverse. You walk up to one of the massive tanks in this dank, dimly lit room. You press your face against it to see its contents and something creeps toward you. And as it's about to come into focus, you wake up to the sound of sirens. Officers Bishop and Pettymore were soon called to the chief's house after it had exploded, leaving behind the burned bodies of Harold Dorsey, Chief Maggie Cook, and an unkempt man with a bullet hole in his head and his face in a pile of foot meat. That man, we now know, was James the Millworker. The three cops decided they needed to go to Dr. Millar, the dentist in contention to verify and match the dental records of the three deceased folks. Clark looked into the chief's car and it was clean. The glove box was empty. The dash cam had been unplugged. Clark checked the GPS history. Chief Maggie Cook's cruiser had been at the mill on the other side of the city since the evening of December 1st. That night, the strange dreams continued. John Lee Pettymore IV. The sky is dark, but the ground begins to give light to the world. You see a man in the distance with his head and hands and stocks that sit on an inky black stage. As you walk toward this man, the ground becomes wider and wider like a screen's brightness level being gradually turned up. You hear a holler from behind you, and when you turn around, you see your mother. She looks... She looks like she did when she was about your age, and she's crying. She looks past you, and a door appears in between you, but you can hear her say, I'm so sorry. He's just so beautiful. You you don't have to do this. We can leave. We can run. The door floats up into the sky, and sitting behind it is that trunk you locked up in the police department with the woman's split head atop the black, putrid, hacked-up anatomy. You turn around, and you're face-to-face with the man in the stocks, John Peters, his forehead burned and peeling with the word, fool. Desperate, his eyes widen, and he whispers, please, it's coming. 
They are playing the roles of greater men. You have to save everyone. It is coming. Clark Bishop. You're walking through a parking lot. You look down. You see you're carrying a piece of old parchment that's rolled up with a neat little string tied tightly around it. Looking up, you hand it to the cashier at your local grocery store. You like this guy. He's trying to scan the scroll, but it's not beeping. He looks at you and he chuckles. This is going to cost you greatly. As you walk out of the grocery store, you step into the sanctuary of a church during a funeral. A young boy with an enormous forehead and the darkest eyes you've ever seen is walking up to you and tears are streaming down his face as he stares into your eyes. You hear a small voice inside you that says, please, sir, as the crying boy holds out his hands. As you hand the scroll to the young boy, you begin to hear cries throughout the sanctuary you're standing in. As you look around, the congregation is trying to run away, but they're melting into the floor. You look down, and you too are melting into the floor. When you look up, the boy has been replaced by Tildy B. Mitchell, who looks down at you with her finger pointed at you like a gun. She disappears and reappears over and over again as you slowly sink into the floor. As your eyes look to the ceiling of the chapel, you hear a voice inside you say, Let go, as you wake up in bed. John awoke to a text from Drew Andrews. It reads, Clark came by last night when no one was at the station. He warned me not to go to the chief's house. He was limping. But he wasn't limping later. What is going on? And where is all the cake? There was also a text from Keith explicitly asking John for drugs. He rolled out of bed, bagged up some coke, and headed into the police station for work and a meeting with the FBI. Without a reply from Officer Pettymore confirming he would bring some of the cocaine, Officer Vigna drove up and broke into John Lee Pettymore's house to find it. This was cocaine they stole from a storage unit after finding the key at the home of a missing person. At the station, a news report played over the radio. A fire at the city hospital had claimed the lives of more than 20 individuals. The names of the deceased were not being released yet. More importantly to the officers, however, was the decision of what to order for breakfast. Finally deciding on Bishop's Big Bean Breakfast from Beans on Beans. Drew remembered that two children were reported missing from the suburbs, Aiden and Alice Little. John and Clark shot each other a glance, and then John changed the subject to the matter of a second Clark Bishop. Drew explained what happened on his end. Clark came in around 1 a.m., limping, wearing a hoodie and jeans, and told Drew not to go to Chief Maggie Cook's house. But Clark was attempting the sting operation with John and Keith at 1 a.m., The security footage showed Clark Bishop limping in and out the door in street clothes. So they decided moving forward they would use a code word to assure each other they were each dealing with the real version of themselves. That code word, bubblegum tree. As Keith Vigna pulled back into the parking lot with breakfast, a blacked out SUV parked and agents Kennedy and McKinley hopped out from the passenger and back seats and headed in. Keith grabbed the food and Nike bag and followed them into the police station. 
Agent McKinley, the old dead-eyed man, scanned the office, saw John, started freaking out, turning and sprinting away, passing Keith as he ran back out into the lot. Agent Kennedy apologized for him, saying their last mission went poorly and he's lost it a bit. Agent Kennedy also said she's from Minnesota, with a weird Irish accent. The officers said they wanted answers. She promised to give information after she put something in that bag. John asked if it was something strange. Yes. Agent Kennedy pulled out a small lockbox, two inches by two inches, with a combination lock on it. Inside was a small metal sphere with a diameter of one inch. She dropped the sphere into the bag and immediately breathed a sigh of relief. Clark looked into the bag. Nothing. He asked about the ball. She said it's why Agent McKinley is so unintelligible now. So John called Agent Kennedy to the back of the station to look at their catman. When she was more intrigued than confused, John freaked out and told the agent that there's a weird gun and a weird radio and a weird camera and the weird radio made that guy into a catman. Plus there's oil all over the place. Agent Kennedy sighed. She guessed that meant that they were in. She'd be right back. She walked out of the station and walked back in with Billy Harrison. Billy Harrison, the bald fit man, holding Keith's gun and belt atop his nicely folded uniform. Keith grabbed his shit and walked back to his desk, and Billy said he hoped Keith was feeling better. Agent Kennedy dropped the bad accent and told Harrison all three officers had seen a lot of shit. She knew he wanted to get home, so maybe they should just leave the number and the bag and bail? He nodded. Kennedy turned to the three cops, Andrew Andrews. You're completely fucked. Luckily for you all, though, I'm, I'm going to leave this bag here with you. Anything you put in it disappears. That's all we know about it. It's a myth, even within this community who have seen the unnatural at work. But we have seen today, all of us here, that Agent Victor's Nike bag is real. Guys, the world does not work the way we all grew up knowing it to be. You're all charged now with understanding that. That understanding of the world will cause your lives to crumble. But the thing that keeps us going is that daily, we are saving the human race from being wiped out of existence. I'm going to leave this here with you all, and you'll be given a secure location to drop it when the job is done. Now, your job is to stop the incursion, minimize exposure, save lives, and cover the whole thing up to save others from being exposed. We're going to give you the same information that all newcomers get, which is a phone number. You give them a call when the situation is taken care of or if things get completely out of hand, or they'll call in 48 hours if you don't. Good luck. Let's go back now to the past, to a young Clark Bishop in his childhood home, the same home he lives in now. Back then, the plastic was on the couch. There were angel wings and pictures of Jesus. Clark is playing in the living room. His parents are in the kitchen cooking, and Wheel of Fortune is on, like always, in the background. Clark's mom pulls him close to repeat her go-to motto. Life is like the bonus round. We were already given the best letters. And then she sends little Clark off to see Mr. Gerald Fingerson at the Mary Cole Library, Contention's public book depository, with lemon poppy seed muffins in hand. The library smells musty. It's rarely used by the community. 
Gary Daly, owner and operator of the Daily Pho, is having a loud conversation with Mr. Fingerson about occult books. And currently open in front of him is The True and Horrifying Confessions of the St. Osythe Witches. Clark presents the poppy seed muffins, and Fingerson puts the baked goods with the other batches due to his gluten intolerance. The phone rings. Bring, 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 bring. Gerald answers. Gerald says it was for Clark. He says the voice on the other line said that Clark has the best letters. The voice sounded panicked, and then it screamed a little. Outside, the sky turns dark. The immediate lack of sunlight is noticed inside the Mary Cole Library. Strange forms of tall, gaunt men begin moving around outside the library. A figure in the darkness wearing a cloak is locking the doors of the library from the outside with a massive chain. He turns and runs, and out of one of the windows, you see a massive flash of light. A gigantic shadow moves out of frame. It's an enormous but thin man in a black suit sprinting away from the cloaked figure. Gerald opens a window. Light comes back into the world, and everything seems as it once was. Clark looks at Mr. Daly, who's staring at his book. Gary looks up and asks if there was a big cloud. Mr. Fingerson thinks the occult books must have something to do with this. So Daly reads aloud what he'd been reading when it went dark. And casting her eyes aside, she saw a spirit lift up a cloth lying over a pot, looking much like a ferret. And it being asked of this examinant why the spirit did look upon her, she said it was hungry. This examinant being asked how she knew the names of Mother Bennett's spirits saith that Tiffin, her spirit, did tell this examinant that she had two spirits, the one of them like a black dog and the other red like a lion, and that their names were Suckin and Laird, and saith that Suckin did plague by its wife unto death and the other plague three of his beasts, whereof two of them died. But before he could finish, the three decide to not speak of this again. When Clark arrives home, when he turns the corner, his mind can't quite handle what it's seeing, and it begins to fragment. One scene, then another. First, he sees his house in perfect condition. His consciousness changes channels, and he sees police officers everywhere. It flips again, everything's normal. It flips again, and two black sedans are outside the house. It flips again, everything's normal as he walks into the house. There's a flash. He sees his parents have been lifted off the ground and are half inside the walls of the home. Their faces are frozen and cold and white with the lack of blood. It flips again. Everything looks normal. But he hears voices. It flips. He sees people. Someone says, yeah, we, well, we couldn't find the artifact and we had to get the fuck out of there because Karen did her goddamn magic trick again. And then everything is normal. Then he hears whispers. Then he sees a man wearing a suit. Oh shit, it's a fucking kid, man. Clark is sitting in a courtroom in contention. And he's trying to think back on that day, but he can't remember anything except for how normal it all was. How his house just looked normal, but empty. They just weren't there anymore. But here, there's a woman. She's on trial. She's being convicted right now for the death of Clark's parents. Her name is Anne Love. She's cold and vacant. 
but she's always smiling, and her asymmetrical bangs cover one of her eyes. On the stand, she says, Yes, I did it, and I'd do it again. Back in current times, the officers went to the Daily Pho after Gary Daly called in to report information about the chief's disappearance. Gary Daly was the longtime partner of Harry Clinker and the owner-operator of the Daily Pho, a contention staple that had been around for generations. Gary Daly was an older man. He wore jeans, cuffed halfway up his calves, and a nice short sleeve button-down with tiny cartoon bean sprouts printed all over it. He asked if the officers remembered when he would help watch them down at Clinker's when they were but wee little fellas, and invited them back to his office. Some of the art hanging in the walls of the Daily Pho, however, caught the boys' attention. One was a circle with a star inside of it. Inside that star was another star, and there were a couple triangles, curved lines, and tiny circles as well. A fun take on the chaoticness of the universe. Another was a tree branch with three twigs growing on one side and two twigs growing on the other. It was in a bunch of old texts that Gary had seen at different museums and libraries from various cultures and eras. Another print was a black circle with six black dots surrounding it. An ancient sign for a group that might have existed called the Circle of Knowledge. They tried to keep the world together. The last was a wonky question mark with two additional lines, one curved and one straight jutting down from the question mark's dot, a symbol of a land unknown. Anyway, Gary had heard Harold Dorsey was in town and wanted a blog post at what's behind Dorsey.blogspot.com written about the Daily Pho. So he was kind of sort of stalking Harold Dorsey. He followed Dorsey to the chief's house and saw a guy holding the chief and James at gunpoint. The guy with the gun was overweight, wearing all black, and had a big scar over his right eye. James was wearing rubber waders, and the chief seemed off. She didn't stand up straight the way Chief Cook would. In the phone book, they found an address for James. Keith remembered the hunched-over, unkempt guy at the chief's house was wearing rubber waders. John remembered the unkempt man with the vacuum was wearing rubber waders. And the address for James matched just down the street from Dr. Marie Jacobs' house. Let's go once again into the past to a young John Lee Pettymore IV, just after the moment that ended his sprint car racing career. John Lee Pettymore IV and Don D. Pettymore, John's dad's cousin, are sitting in the back of an ambulance, and the EMT is checking out John. She tells the young Pettymore there's just no way he'll ever race again. Don grabs John's face and tells him he's got to give up on this dream now, and they hug. Don pushes John in a wheelchair out to the parking lot, but from the rear, Don sees two figures begin approaching. They're both extremely tall with large, gaunt frames. They begin walking faster and faster toward the two. Don starts running with the wheelchair, but the two figures are catching up. There's no one else around. They're both wearing black suits, and their skin is weirdly translucent. One of them starts screaming. John hollers, get at the fanciest men he's ever seen. And the Pettymore boys make it to the parking lot just in time to see their car now being flipped over by large Eddie 
and his pit crew. John yells at Large Eddie, and Large Eddie approaches the two petty moors. Eddie swings. Don catches Large Eddie's hand, mutters under his breath, and Large Eddie's hand starts sizzling like a country fried steak on a Sunday morning. Smoke starts coming out of there. Eddie screams. Don holds on before dropping it and hitting him once more in the face. Eddie runs off hollering. Don helps the concussed John Lee Pettymore IV into their car. Back in the current timeline, the officers went to the first church of contention. On the way there, they noticed a strange occurrence. The creek, though it was a chilly December day, was filled to the brim with animals of all sorts. Dogs, cats, possums, raccoons, town creatures of all kinds. The FCC was hosting a lunch for anyone who needed it, made by the pastor's wife and children, and served by the youth group. Keith Vigna, impatient and rude, broke into Pastor Adam Kane's office and stole the old motorcycle helmet from off his desk. The helmet had some tubes on either side with one green and one red light, and the red light was lit. But hey, it turns out maybe Keith is a monster to be around because his dad was a dick who clearly preferred Keith's older brother, Ferguson. Way back when they were children, while playing on their family's sprawling estate, Keith and Ferguson heard the alarm sirens blaring as strange, gaunt men in suits appeared to fall from the sky. However, they were promptly shot down by the Bean security personnel. That night, William Bean sat the boys down and told them what happened is exactly why they have security. And he added, the most important thing is Ferguson's safety. William took Ferguson to his workshop, leaving Keith to hide and eavesdrop. That's when he told Ferguson why he was so important. He said he didn't know how much longer he'd be around. He had hoped that he would be the one to fulfill the prophecy, but it is not him. It is Ferguson. Ferguson is the anointed. When the time is right, he must go back and save the world. And with that, he handed Ferguson a watch and promised that it would fit when the time was right. Back in whatever year it is now, the officers took the pastor's helmet to the police station and locked it up in the evidence room along with the other items from the booth at Forgotten Treasures, the gun, camera, and radio, all in separate lockers. They were all showing a red light, except for the camera, green light lit. Outside the station, John took a picture of Keith with this glass tube-lined camera, and there was a massive flash of bright light and an inky black substance was all over John's hands and dripping down from the camera and the picture. It was pooling on the ground, and they could swear it was moving. Then they blinked, and the substance was gone. John's hands were clean, and he was just holding this odd device and even odder picture. The camera's light was red again, and the picture showed two men in a room made of darkness. They could barely make out the two figures in the picture thanks to the light from a small candle, also made out of a substance without color. The candle was sitting on a table made of the same unbelievably black texture. Of the two men, one was a slender, muscular man in a black t-shirt, revealing tribal tattoo sleeves on both arms going down his hands to his fingertips. He was kneeling before the other man, who looked like a no-bullshit actual cowboy. This man, this cowboy, seemed to be looking into the camera. 
holding his hand up to block his face from the camera's flash and sight. On their way to the mill on the other side of the city, the officers drove on a bridge over a creek, and there were loads of animals in the water at this part of the creek as well. John threw his lights on to get ahead of Clark, and as he passed, he saw the sky ahead begin to swirl. About 30 feet above the ground, a flat oval began to form. The sky around it spiraled like cloth, making folds as it gathered and bunched in places. The oval was black, but this technicolor energy was erupting from its darkness. And then, just as swiftly, the sky was just as it was but something was falling. Suddenly, the windshield of John's vehicle shattered and tiny shards of glass covered everything. Slumped across Officer Pettimore's dashboard was the lifeless body of a grown man and blood was splattered everywhere. He lost control of the vehicle and swerved into oncoming traffic, hearing the sound of a horn blaring as it roared closer and closer before the cruiser jerked to a stop. All three officers saw the flash of a car fly by, and then they heard a deafening crash and the rumble of fire. In the chaos, it was hard to understand what all had happened. A minivan was run off the road by Officer Pettymore, the former teen sprint car racer who was banned from the circuit after an accident that left multiple bystanders hospitalized. Officer Bishop slammed into the back of Pettymore's cruiser, and there was fluid leaking everywhere. The minivan that narrowly avoided the head-on collision with John, it flipped and caught fire. Pettymore worked diligently to keep the two police cruisers from exploding, which likely would have killed Officer Vigna, who couldn't handle the situation and fell unconscious, thrust into the memories of a particularly traumatic childhood Christmas. Officer Bishop pulled a young boy from the fiery wreckage of the minivan, but it might have already been too late. Before he could go back to save the woman trapped behind the wheel as well as the other passenger, the minivan combusted. Looking at the body on John's windshield, they'd finally found their missing John Peters. Just hadn't expected him to fall out of the sky. The balding man with large eyes and a small nose was wearing a pair of jeans and a button-down shirt, and on his forehead, recently branded into the skin, was the word fool. The ambulance arrived, and firemen were seen pulling a woman's charred remains from the driver's seat of the minivan. Two others from the back of the van pulled out the body of a small girl. Drew pulled up in Keith's cruiser because he got a call from the estate salesman at James's house. Apparently, he found some unsettling writing in blood and many, many guns after accidentally triggering some secret door trap. The salesman was wondering if he could sell the guns in the estate sale. Drew had told him the police needed to look at the scene first. Drew and John then very subtly walked over to the ditch off the side of the road to speak privately. Drew said he received a message from the Duke. The deal was going down that night at 2 a.m. John offered Drew 5% to convince the Duke to do the deal out at the Pettymore farm. Drew and John then walked back up and they all saw a wet black cat running toward them from off the road. The cat, seemingly panicked, jumped onto John's leg and meowed like crazy. John held the cat up and told Doug, 
they were going to get him the help he needed. At this point, a small but vocal group of the contention population began protesting and letting these officers know how they felt. Drew apologized to the officers for not passing along critical information like the calls about missing persons, animals in the ponds and creeks, as well as a voicemail from the feds. Doug, Dr. Marie Jacobs' husband, who is inhabiting the body of their cat Salem, conveyed to the officers that the animals were hiding in the water because the oily substance could not get them in the ponds and creeks. And at James the Millworker's house, the estate salesman, Randy Angst, dressed in a fancy blue three-piece suit holding a cane with a big tooth on the top, handed the cops a card when he greeted them. The card said, Mr. Angst is the dentist and the estate salesman in town. He also founded the Contention Historical Society. When asked about the picture from the odd camera John found in Julie Maxwell's car, Angst noted that a few of the folks were dressed in clothes about a hundred years off from the rest. When questioned about Cole's orphanage, the dentist slash estate salesman recalled an orphanage by that name opening about 25 years prior, though it did close down within a year. In James the Millworker's house, they found a cache of guns hidden under the coffee table, writing in blood where one of the guns should be that read, Stop Her, and a large plastic tube, all revealed after touching the bow tie of a statue of a man wearing a tuxedo. There were a bunch of cleaning supplies, random materials, and a handwritten list hidden in a small enclave behind an oil painting of a rose. All the liquids had been crossed out, including the three listed types of water, tap, distilled, and boiling, and all of the materials had been crossed out, except neoprene, a kind of synthetic rubber. When Clark tapped the white hard hat atop the suit of armor in the foyer, he found a trap door and fell into a 12-foot deep pit with two corpses, a man and a woman. In one of their pockets was a paper with a hand-drawn symbol, a circle encircled by six circles. In the front room, there was a grand piano without strings, and in the kitchen, there were a few loose tiles where something heavy, metal, and buried had been dragged out. As the place was being searched, a heavy artillery weapon began firing into the house from the front yard. A looming, overweight man wearing an all-black combat uniform with a large scar over his right eye blasted the door from its frame, almost cut Officer Bishop's arm off, froze at the command of Officer Pettymore, and eventually, after a brutal combat between the contention boys and the massive metal man, flew out of the window, bottomless, ripping the throat of Officer Vigna. Thank beans, he poked that Terminator top in the eye just in time to escape, falling to the ground before the metal fella exploded like fireworks. The officers cleaned themselves up after fighting this large robot man that seemed to perhaps have feelings? Continuing the investigation of James the Millworker's house, Keith Vigna found a single piece of music entitled the rise of the end in the bench of the stringless piano. Clark Bishop found in the large plastic tube blueprints for calm, comfy campground, a suspiciously planned out set of seven buildings, six encircling a large one in the center on an island sitting on Lake Calm. 
They all stood there in James the Millworker's house, and the officers remembered he died in Chief Maggie Cook's house with a bullet in his head face down in a plate of foot meat. They remembered the contents of the present she received from an unknown source the night she took off. A red rose, a white hard hat, and a black silk bow tie, all of which were present in this home, in a painting, on a suit of armor, and worn by a statue, respectively. They called Florence, the fourth and only other contention police officer, but it went to voicemail immediately. After undressing the bottom half of the still-standing robot man's legs, the gang found a logo on the smooth pelvic area, an M made of four double helices. Late on the night of December 4th, after the weirdest dinner and Wheel of Fortune session Clark Bishop had ever been subject to due to his super fucking weird new coworker, Keith Vigna left the Bishop home, headed back to Hotel Motel, and was approached by his niece, Frances Beans. She offered her uncle, Officer Vigna, $1 million from her inheritance to kill her father, Keith's brother, Ferguson Beans. Upon accepting her proposal, the two began driving east, away from contention. John got home to find his place had been turned over. His Smokey and the Bandit DVDs had been knocked and stepped on. Among the mess was a Burgatory Rewards card for Keith Vigna. John vowed to kill Keith. But first, he smoked a bowl and put on Smokey. Drew eventually showed up holding a pistol, but by the top. So John showed Drew how to use the safety on his pistol. And they went out to the shooting tree to practice aiming and firing. With final preparations for the coke deal with the Duke in place, John made a bird call, and another call replied from the woods. At 2 a.m., technically the morning of December 5th, a white 15-passenger van pulled up to the Pettymore property with the words, Jesus Christ Ministries, painted on the side, filled with children, pulling a white trailer that also said, Jesus Christ Ministries. The most handsome man John had ever seen hopped out of this van. Perfect hair, perfect teeth, a perfect jawline, and he was wearing the fuck out of a bright white suit with a red rose pinned perfectly to his lapel. Coke was buried in two holes, and John would point out where to dig when he received half the money. Same plan for the second half. A bunch of children ran out of the van, all carrying shovels in the same way, and they lined up waiting for the Duke. On his command, the children began digging. John asked if the kids all have the same mom. Yeah, you could, you could say that. Hmm. After the children loaded the cocaine into the trailer behind the van, the Duke handed John the briefcase with $5 million in it. Same thing happened behind the woodpile as it did beneath the big tree. The transaction went smoothly. John offered the Duke $1,000 for information about Marvin Glass. The Duke doesn't like Marvin Glass. See, Glass is a competitor, but also a customer. Marvin Glass buys in bulk. When the Duke was asked about his rose, he said he liked the smell, laughed, and admitted he had no sense of smell. When John asked about the kids, the Duke said goodbye to Drew, got back in the van, drove down the long driveway, and out onto the country road. 
John whistled, and eight Pettymore cousins came walking out from the woods, received their payment, ten grand and a twenty-four pack of Keystone Light each, and they all fired their guns into the air in celebration. Back at the Bishop abode, Clark heard Keith leave, got up, and locked the front door. Walking back to bed, though, he looked out the window to Coles Creek, which flows down south from the lake at Centennial Park. The whole thing was packed with animals. A fair few people had been out there earlier looking for their pets, but not at this late hour, too dark, too cold. And then he saw a humanoid figure hobbling down the frigid waterway in his direction. It was running but it seemed to be fighting through a limp. And when it reached the point in the creek closest to Clark's house, he leapt from the water and began screaming and waving his arms, all while looking directly toward Clark's window. Clark's brain had a hard time comprehending what it was he was seeing, but this man, this man running towards him, it was him. And then a warm pinch on the back of the neck and Clark's vision tunneled to a close. Clark came to as a black bag was being snatched off his head. He felt hung over and his chest was weird and tight. It smelled damp and earthy and there was a haze around the torch above shedding partial light from the middle of the small stone-walled room. Clark was sitting in a chair across a stone table from a man with gray hair under a white hard hat and a charcoal suit with a bolo tie. The man looked relaxed as he tossed the black bag onto the table and began to speak. After Richard III's coronation, he was visited by a seer from Leicester who called himself the Overseer. The seer claimed that the now king was to hold some very important knowledge, but would need to have the restraint to not abuse this power. Richard was given this knowledge, but he couldn't handle it. He lost his mind and killed his two nephews. The overseer, disappointed, eventually passed the same knowledge to Henry Tudor so he could whoop Richard at Bosworth. Henry VII held this power and eventually passed it down to a reliable and trusted confidant, thankfully not his piece of shit son. This knowledge was passed down repeatedly, abused and respected, respected and abused until it made its way over the Atlantic to the colonies, eventually landing with a high order of masons. A select few held this information for generations, but a grand purpose was never found. Until Paul Simon, the politician, not the singer, soon after being elected to the Senate, he was walking near his home when he came across the first known xenonematode. He sought out Robert Byrd, the Senate Minority Leader at the time, to share his newfound understanding of the world. Thankfully for the world, Byrd was among those carrying the knowledge of the Overseer from centuries before. Together, they formed a small circle of men to hold the weight of this realization. Today, we carry on their tradition by keeping the darkness out of this world. We are the opaque rampart delaying the destruction of life as we know it. Welcome to the circle of knowledge. You have questions, I'm sure, and I know this sounds hypocritical after that lengthy oration, but as my high school English teacher would always say, show, don't tell. He reached under the table, and as he stood up, he held up an unspeakable, worm-like abomination with one hand away from his body. 
The thing was two feet long and tube-like, covered in a squamous, black, partially translucent membrane, its body segmented in toxically green, pulsating arteries and veins could be seen through its thin-looking exterior. It had no identifiable eyes or nose. Its cavernous, circular mouths, one sitting just inside the other, were lined with hooked teeth, and it spit out a saliva that was somehow darker than black. Keith Vigna sat in the car of his niece, Frances Beans, a Chrysler Sebring. She'd offered him one million dollars to kill her father, his brother, Ferguson Beans. After some back roads through the woods, she pulled up to a black iron fence. Frances hopped out and motioned for Keith to follow her as she opened a hatch in the ground and jumped inside, disappearing from view. Keith followed down the hatch into a dark, underground tunnel lit by red lights on the walls every 15 feet. France told him he'll pop up on the estate in a sweet spot with no security and he'll have a straight shot to the house. Keith went up, followed her directions, and made his way into Ferguson's house undetected. Keith searched for and found bleach, ammonia, and a towel. But when Keith walked into Ferguson's room, the lights were out. There were candles on either side of the bed, and lit by candlelight was a woman on top of the sheets in bedwear, but not Stacy, not Ferguson's wife. This was an older woman, a generation older than Ferguson and Keith. She freaked out. Keith calmed her down, said he's a contention police officer, and that he got a call that someone had broke in. She claimed she was there to meet Ferguson. This was Joan Robin the mother of Ferguson's business partner, Bruce. Joan explained that Ferguson offered her a million dollars to sleep with him so he could make your mom jokes to his business partner. Keith told her she had two options. She could leave, or she could shoot Ferguson when he came into the room. Joan realized with Ferguson gone, her son would take control of the company. Keith offered her half a million dollars, and she accepted Keith found Ferguson's revolver, handed it to Joan, and a car could be heard pulling up to the house. A white 15-passenger van with the words, Jesus Christ Ministries, painted on the side, pulled into the pristine circle drive. The van pulled a white trailer that also said, Jesus Christ Ministries. A beautiful man got out of the passenger side of the van. He had perfect hair perfect teeth, a perfect jawline, and he was wearing the fuck out of a bright white suit with a red rose pinned perfectly to his lapel. It was Keith's brother, Ferguson Beans. He clicked a button on his keys, and as he walked toward his home, the ground around the van and trailer began to move and shift. The entire vehicular ensemble was transported below ground on some crazy futuristic elevator of sorts as the driveway closed back up with no evidence the van or trailer had ever sat there. Keith hid in the closet with the ammonia, bleach, and towel. The door opened shut, and Ferguson hollered upstairs, Joan? The power out? A scared Joan yelled back, It it must have been the storm. The door to the room opened, and Keith heard a shot, then a scream, then another shot, then a different scream, then another shot, and another shot, and another shot. And then Keith heard crying, 
It sounded like Joan. Keith opened the door of the closet to see Ferguson on the floor in a white suit with a rose on his lapel, riddled with holes from his own gun. Joan ran to Keith and hugged him. Keith started crying. Joan was crying. Keith told Joan to calm down and and lay on the bed so he could clean up the scene. Joan sat at the end of the bed with her head in her hands, and Keith, Keith grabbed the bleach, ammonia, mixed it up on the rag. He walked over to Joan and tried to lock his arm behind her head and force the rag over her mouth, but Joan got her hand in between her mouth and the towel. Keith attacked again violently. He held her down on the bed until she passed out. Officer Keith Vigna grabbed the revolver with his handkerchief, put it in Joan's hand, held the gun to her head, and pulled the trigger, leaving the room to look like Joan shot Ferguson five times before turning the gun on herself. Walking away, Keith saw the watch on Ferguson's wrist. It was the same watch their dad, William, had given Ferguson when they were kids. Keith took the watch, noticing there was nothing on the face, and slipped it in his pocket when, all of a sudden, his consciousness began changing, like changing the channel. He began to phase out of his reality. He seems to be somewhere else entirely. Keith felt wet grass and dirt on his fingers. He was looking at a door in the ground, like a sealed metal door that was mostly buried, and on the door was an inscription. It read, Here lies the beans, scientists beyond measure, saviors of the world. Keith walked back through the tunnel, under the ground with the red lights, with glazed eyes. Keith back at the hotel, stuck the watch and the handkerchief into the room safe, and laid down flat on his bed. John Lee Pettymore just successfully made $5 million by selling cocaine to a random, handsome stranger named The Duke. Paid him a grand to know that Marvin Glass buys from him in bulk, and paid eight cousins ten grand and a 24-pack of Keystone Light each, to which they took a Pettymore sky shot and headed off into the night. Drew walked up and said thank you. Thank you for making all this money, for showing him how to shoot a gun. With all the money, Drew planned on donating his house to Boys and Girls Club, and then he's probably just going to bail. And then Drew drove off down the long driveway to the country road. Home alone, John wanted to kill Keith Vigna, but he opted for leaving Keith drunk voicemails, slamming three more beers, snorting another line, brushing his teeth, and sending Keith a text that just says, I know. John then swept up his smoky DVDs, put in the director's cut, and fell asleep smoking a joint on his couch, dreaming of his millions, but also of terrible monsters. He woke up to the sound of two gunshots. Rosemary was holding six Pettymores and Drew hostage outside. Two Pettymores were face down in the dirt and she called out for John. He came out on his front porch with his hands up. She told him her boss, Marvin Glass, wants the gun. John, John thinks they can help each other. Glass wants his boys back, right? John wants his town back, right? She said she was sent to collect this gun, and John asked if he could deliver it. She agreed. First, she let the cousins all go free. Then she got John and Drew into the front of Drew's Mini Cooper, hopped in the back, and held their own guns at them while they drove back into town to the Contention Police Department.
Clark was in the circular stone room with the stone table lit by a torch. The man sat across from him, put down the creature into a container between his legs, and closed the lid before introducing himself as Leon Simpson. And he welcomed Clark into the circle of knowledge. Clark's first task began forthwith. Leon pulled out a small plastic container and slid it toward Clark. He took a gun out of his pocket, a tranquilizer, and in the plastic container were a pair of needles. Leon told Clark these darts were filled with a particular toxin to make anyone obey for some time. The job was this, an FBI agent was on his way to contention to take over the missing persons cases. As this would be bad for Clark and for the circle of knowledge, Clark needed to trank this FBI agent and make sure he didn't see anything funny going on. Leon Simpson asked Clark what exactly had been going on that was so funny in contention. And Clark, Clark spilt those beans. Leon was impressed by the sheer amount of strange information coming from Clark and so reiterated his current mission. Keep the FBI agent away from any of the strangeness, any of the goo or ooze or whatever they're calling it. This next part was important. Clark had 24 hours. And then Leon needed him to report back so they could make sure that he'd be okay. Clark asked about the creature. Leon told him it's a xenonematode. Currently, they believe these things are a vector, either from another time, another place, or another reality. They're not quite positive. However, they're the things Paul Simon found that connected the dots to the knowledge of the overseer. These creatures are not of this place. They have certain abilities the circle of knowledge has found a way to exploit, and they are necessary, kept around for a very specific purpose. Again, Leon decided to show, not tell. He opened the one door in this room into another circular stone room. This one was much bigger, 20 yards across with a domed ceiling. The walls were stone and there were a handful of torches mounted to light the room. There were six large slabs of stone, each with a couple of people laying on them, circling a single unoccupied stone slab in the center of the space. Each person laying down had one of those giant fucked up worm things attached to them, and many of them seemed to have dead skin covering one or multiple limbs. There was also a woman in electric blue slacks and a bright yellow cardigan walking deliberately around each slab, checking on each group and checking her watch. She smiled when she saw Clark Bishop. Leon explained that these brave men and women, motioning to the people on the slabs, who all looked very down on their luck, these fine individuals have dedicated their lives to the survival of humanity. Clark questioned their willingness, and Leon argued that things around here were much better than they used to be, Anyway, Clark needed to get going. The timer had already started and Leon said he'd hate for the 24 hours to pass as they'd hate to lose Clark so soon. As he walked Clark out of the room, the woman said goodbye to Leon. Clark turned back and, and looked. He recognized this woman. She was cold and vacant with a big smile on her face. Her asymmetrical hair was covering one of her eyes. And love. The woman who killed Clark's parents smiled and calmly said, Bye, Clark. As he rushed toward her, Officer Bishop felt another warm pinch in his neck, and love began laughing as he slowly crumpled to the ground. 
Clark Bishop woke up in a cab, and looking behind, he saw he was leaving the mill on the other side of the city. What's up? It's Zach. I'm Zach, here to give you an idea of what's going on and whatnot. So I decided it would be really helpful and nice to write a recap of season one so far and record it so everyone is nice and caught up before we dive into the final arc of the story. I thought this would be a pretty simple task, and I, I thought I could encapsulate it all in, in one episode. <laughs> Boy, howdy, was was I super, super wrong. First, I forgot how stupid I am. Uh, second, I forgot how detail-oriented I can be. So it's looking like this project has turned into way more work than I intended or have time for. Uh, but that's okay. I still think it'll be fun for everyone, especially the players, uh, to really have a grasp on what's going down before we hit the end. So here's the deal. I, I need some help. Writing this transcript, it, it was a massive undertaking. Again, duh, should have known better going in, but oh well. So there is a link in the show notes and on Twitter and Facebook, fuck Mark Zuckerberg, to a Google Doc we can all share. It will have the transcript for this episode, which covered episodes one through 23. Now, if you write up a few succinct but thorough paragraphs recapping an episode of this show, you will be entered to win a PTBP t-shirt. Now, if you write up a few succinct but thorough paragraphs recapping three or more episodes, you will be entered to win one of five PTBP t-shirts. So if only five people write up three or more episodes, boom, you got a shirt. And finally, finally, if you really, if you go above and beyond, if you write up a few succinct but thorough paragraphs recapping five or more episodes, I will guarantee you a PTBP t-shirt. The clock is already ticking on the next episode, so let's focus first on episodes 24 to 46 and leave your handle or email address so we know who wrote what and how to contact you in case we get to ship you a shirt. This um, this contest slash giveaway slash help Zach out project does have a deadline, and that deadline is Tuesday, October 13th at midnight central time. Please note that the recap focused on in-character action. Uh, there unfortunately just isn't enough time to include all the dice rolling and meta goofs. In class, be wary of grammatical issues. Wolf the dog hates grammatical issues. He learned them all just so he would know how to break them. Now, I'll get these recap episodes out as quickly as possible so we can dumpster dive into the finale of season one, guys. I'm so fucking stoked, y'all. May the wolf bless each and every one of you. Hot dog.